Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for those who come from elsewhere, and a particularly warm welcome, of course, to George Soros. Um, this is quite a week in London, uh, as you know, with 27 heads of government, three of whom are coming here to speak uh, in the next three days, President of Indonesia this afternoon, of Russia on Thursday, and Argentina on Friday. And of course, there are all the official events, uh, and then rumors of unofficial events in the streets, etc. And even, of course, we saw uh, yesterday afternoon uh, that the police have actually arrested some people who seem to intend to disrupt the summit. Uh, George Soros's intention is also to disrupt the summit. Um, <laughs> but uh, we are pleased that he hasn't yet been arrested. Um, and is able to come and speak to us uh, beforehand. Uh, George is um, about to launch a new edition of his book, and since it's always embarrassing for authors to hold their own book up, I will do it for him, which is The Crash of 2008 and What It Means. Paperback edition should be in the, in the bookshop, which includes uh, a chapter bringing it uh, up to date, including some reference to the role of SDRs. And so what he's going to talk to us about today is the build-up to the summit and what the summit means, but specifically focusing on ideas which he's developed actually for some years, I think it was about seven or eight years ago, uh, that George Soros first advanced the case for a significant expansion of SDRs uh, to provide a financing facility particularly for developing countries. So, we're delighted that, uh, once again, he's chosen as, of course, uh, one of our most celebrated alumni uh, to come and launch these ideas here at the LSE. So, with no more ado, George Soros. Thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much, and thank you, LSE, for making these arrangements at very short notice because we only decided to do it yesterday. So I think it's a feat of organization uh, to, to put it together. And I very much uh, appreciate it because I think I do have the book coming out. It will be out a week later. Uh, I don't know if it's available or not. Uh, but I think the G20 meeting is a very important one and it's sort of hovering on the, on the knife's edge between success and failure. And I think it would be, have tremendous influence which way uh, it goes. And I would like to make a couple of concrete suggestions that would ensure or really turn it into a success. And that is uh, centered on uh, a new issue of special drawing rights by the, by the IMF with the rich countries uh, uh, reallocating their uh, uh, allocations to the poorer countries that are not in a position to print their own money. Uh, to explain why that is so important, I think I have to actually go back to my book and uh, because the book provides a, a uh, 
conceptual framework in which to understand the crisis in which we are today and the importance of this G20 uh, meeting. Uh, I just want to very briefly sort of recap the conceptual framework because I'm sure you have read my book last year and you know it inside out, uh, <laughs> so I don't need to uh, dwell on it too much. But basically what I'm saying is that we do have uh, uh, the financial crisis of our lifetime different from all previous crises. Uh, and, what, uh, and the distinguishing feature of this crisis is that it was generated within the financial system itself. And that contradicts the prevailing theory or paradigm about financial ma markets. Because that paradigm is that financial markets tend towards equilibrium, uh, deviations uh, come from some external uh, uh, source, and on the whole, markets are self-correcting, except for these external shocks. Uh, and deviations from the equilibrium occur in a random manner. That's the prevailing paradigm, and that was clearly contradicted, demolished, by the fact that this crisis came from the financial system, and from the financial system spread to the real economy. So we need a new paradigm, and I propose it in two, uh, two uh, uh, postulates. Uh, one, that financial markets, instead of uh, correctly and fully reflecting all the available knowledge and, and giving a, 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 a correct uh, uh, understanding of the real situation, they always distort reality. There's always a bias and a distortion in the financial markets. <coughs> and, and the second thesis is that this, the mispricing that occurs in the financial market has ways of affecting the so-called <coughs> fundamentals that market prices are supposed to reflect. So instead of a simple one-way connection of markets reflecting reality, there is a two-way connection where ma markets actually shape reality. And this two-way feedback mechanism I call reflexivity. And it explains why markets are so often so good at predicting the future. It isn't because they are based on a, a correct understanding. It's based because they actually shape the future. But the, but the future that they shape is not exactly what, what is expected because there's a misconception or misunderstanding in the markets. So that's the, the, the basic uh, 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 I think uh, thesis that I bring to uh, the interpretation of, of how markets uh, function. And using that, I developed a th 
theory of bubbles, uh, and I contend that bubbles have basically two components, something that actually occurs in reality. In other words, bubbles are not based on, come from thin air. There is something really happening, a trend, prevailing trend. But the, the other aspect, there is some misconception or misinterpretation of that trend. And usually that misconception is corrected uh, uh, in, uh, by events, but occasionally and in certain ways uh, they, they, the misconception or mispricing in the market can validate itself and reinforce both the trend and the misconception. And that's how bubbles uh, develop. Initially self-reinforcing, eventually <coughs> the distortion becomes too big, unsustainable, and you have a reversal and a crash. And the, you know, the build-up is usually takes a long time. The crash usually occurs very rapidly because you have liquidation of the overpriced assets, forced selling, etc. A crash. So it's an asymmetric shape. That's the a general theory of bubbles. And then I also propose an interpretation of this particular situation. And I contend that it's not a simple uh, 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 case of, of a simple bubble. It's a composite of a simple bubble, like the housing bubble in America, which acts as a detonator of a super bubble that has been in formation since 1980. And the, the simple bubble is a relatively simple to understand. It, it occurs quite often in different guises, and it has to do with uh, uh, an underlying trend, which is the uh, increased willingness to lend and availability of, of, of financing. So it's extension of credit and, and increased leverage. That's the basic trend, which is... Re and then there's a misconception, which is that asset prices, in this case uh, the value of real estate, is independent of the willingness to lend. And therefore, you can, the value of the collateral goes up, you can lend more, and that's how the bubble develops. Now, it's a misconception that keep re recurs. It's, it's a very simple one. And it might happen in a stock market. Now, the, the super bubble is a much more complicated one. Uh, and it's takes some time to explain, but basically the underlying trend is a continuous expansion of credit and leverage that has been ongoing since the end of the Second World War. If you look at it, credit as a percentage of GNP has been on the rise. But after 1980, it accelerated tremendously. And that is based on the misconception, which I call market fundamentalism. Uh, which is the prevailing paradigm that markets are self-correcting and therefore they don't need to be regulated and it, it, this was also the basis of the globalization of, uh, of uh, financial markets which was a, effectively a market fundamentalist and very successful uh, endeavor because if you have global financial markets it becomes very difficult to tax or to regulate financial capital because it can move somewhere else. So 
globalization, deregulation, and the increasing use of financial engineering. And since that engineering, which is basically risk, the various techniques of risk management, value at risk, uh, uh, um, and, and various very complicated calculations, and the various instruments, the alphabet soup of new synthetic instruments like uh, CDOs, uh, were, were built on this false conception that deviations are random. And therefore, a past experience gives a, a, a reliable basis for calculating risk. And it leaves out of account the uncertainty, which cannot be quantified, which has to do with, this reflex, with reflexivity, with the ability of misconceptions to reinforce themselves. And that was left out of account. And since the theory behind it was false, we have had a number of crises uh, since 1980. But each time, the, uh, the markets didn't correct themselves. The authorities intervened, and they took care of the failing institution, and when necessary, uh, actually uh, reinforced the creation of credit, uh, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus. And that's how the underlying trend was also reinforced. So the previous crises were successful tent, uh, 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 tests of a false hypothesis. Uh, and it kept on building. And I thought, frankly, uh, in 97, 98, that it was unsustainable. And I wrote a book, uh, Crisis of Global Capitalism, uh, where I said that, and I had egg on my face because actually the system survived it. But this time, you know, crying wolf uh, for the second time, uh, I happen to be right. And uh, maybe, actually, uh, we might have survived, survived, it, survived it even now, but eventually it had to collapse because it was built on false premises. And uh, uh, the longer it lasted, uh, the, the bigger the bubble and the bigger the collapse. And I must say that there, I was not the only one who predicted it and expected it. A lot of old fogies like me uh, did the same. But we, most of us actually made the mistake of thinking that it can't grow this big. I mean, I expected it to happen in 2006. And actually, most of the damage was really done in those extra years. That's the worst uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, um, mortgage uh, subprime uh, series that uh, it's with the worst experience. So the bigger the bubble, uh, the bigger the bust. Uh, uh, so that's the specific theory explaining what is what is going on now, and that's that's the the book that you have all read and know by heart. Uh, now, what happened since last year is that the system actually collapsed, uh, and that actually exceeded my expectations. I did not expect that Lehman Brothers would be allowed to go broke. And that was a, a, a game-changing event. 
result of that action, the financial markets actually collapsed in a very short, very quick sequence. You know, on Monday morning, on Friday, Secretary of Treasury Paulson said, you know, AIG will not be bailed out. Monday, Lehman went broke. By Tuesday, AIG had to be rescued. And the commercial paper market collapsed, and the money markets, one money market fund that had Lehman paper broke the buck, which created a run on the money market funds. And by Thursday, they had to announce a rescue package for the banking system. And effectively, the system suffered cardiac arrest and had to be put on artificial life support. And that is, in fact, what happened when first the European countries and then the United States effectively announced that no other institution that has systemic importance will be allowed to go broke. And that action actually kind of led to more or less a stabilization of the financial system at the center, but it had the unintended consequence of endangering the periphery. The countries where the governments were not in a position to give similarly convincing guarantees. And there was a flight of capital from the periphery to the center. And that's how, you know, it happened to coincide also, of course, with the blowup of the Icelandic banking system. But that's what created then the crisis that currently prevails in Eastern Europe. That's when Brazil, which until then had been doing very well, suddenly had a crash. And that is the problem that has not been solved. And Gordon Brown, to his credit, understood the seriousness of that situation and has made a big attempt to bring together the G20 to deal with it. And that is the real significance of this meeting, because while the situation at the center has been brought under control, it hasn't been solved, but it has been brought under control, the situation in the periphery is still in a crisis mode, which has to be resolved. And that's why it's important that this G20, it doesn't merely provide pious words and general principles, but actually lays the foundations for concrete steps to stabilize the position of the periphery countries. And that is why I wanted to have this lecture today and to talk about it, because basically I think the meeting will produce some concrete results. The capital markets are still in a crisis mode, and that is the real problem. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman.
capital of the IMF is certain to be at least doubled. And that is very helpful because it will enable the IMF to deal with specific countries that get into difficulties, so particularly countries in, in, in Eastern Europe uh, uh, are, are prime candidates uh, for, for support. The IMF only had about $250 billion of, 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 of resources. Uh, doubling it or more will put it in a better position uh, to, uh, uh, to come to the aid of individual countries. But it doesn't provide, not enough to provide systemic uh, 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 solution. And the basis for a systemic solution exists. Uh, this is a special drawing rights. Uh, it's an instrument that already exists. It has been used. But it hasn't quite been used in the way that I hope it will be used now. Um, um, because the new twist, which would make all the difference, is for the rich countries to lend or reallocate their allocations to the poor countries. Uh, rich, by rich I mean countries that can print their own money and give their own guarantees to their banking system. And poor countries are the ones that can't do it. Uh, and, but particularly this would be very useful for the really the, the, the least developed countries. Because basically SERs are very comp complicated, arcane instrument, difficult to understand. I can't say that I fully understand it myself. But basically it, it boils down to the, to the, to the uh, creation of international creation of money uh, um, by giving each country a, a, the ability to draw on the IMF with an ability to convert it into uh, a, a convertible currency. The country that got the, got the IMF allocation actually got additional monetary pace, uh, which is convertible into uh, any other currency. Um, and uh, uh, having that would enable the, those countries to, to provide some support to their banking systems and also to engage in counter-cyclical policies because it's generally agreed that with the collapse of credit, you need to somehow stimulate the, the economy and that can only come from uh, uh, deficit spending uh, by, uh, by governments. Um, basically, what, what the task that confronts the world is actually twofold. First, you have a collapse of credit. You need to arrest it, bring it under control, if it's possible, reverse it. And secondly, you have to reconstitute the very foundations on which the, the system is based, because it has collapsed. You cannot re recreate it. You can't put Humpty Dumpty together. So, you have to reinflate and regulate. And this has been played up in the newspapers as being a, a, a 
big difference between the attitude particularly of Germany and but Europe in general and, and the United States. It's a false dichotomy because both sides acknowledge that you need to do both. You need to both reinflate, arrest the collapse of credit, and also reconstitute the system or regulate. Uh, and it's only a question of sequencing because to arrest the rot uh, the, uh, is very, very urgent. It has to take precedence. And then you, if we, to regulate, to recreate the system, reorganize the system, will take time. So in dealing with the collapse of credit, as far as the least developed countries are concerned, special drawing rights is the way to go. It, it, it enables them to do the same thing that both the United States and Germany are already doing by adding additional, uh, uh, basically, fiscal stimulus uh, to their economy. And Germany is doing as much as, 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 as the United States. Uh, so that's the, I think, if the, um, I mean, it's, it's too late to actually agree on the modalities how to operate this. But if it is proposed, particularly if it's proposed by, uh, by President Obama, uh, because it's really up to the United States to authorize the issuing of SDRs, um, uh, and endorsed by the other countries. I think that would make a, a difference between success and failure, because at least as far as the most badly affected countries, uh, the ones that are going to be hurt most by a storm that, or, uh, that uh, originates in the center, which is not their own making. Uh, I think this would be a, a, a tremendous accomplishment for the, uh, for, the, um, uh, for the G20. And my understanding of the situation is that the, the uh, creation of or a new issue of SDRs is in active, uh, under active consideration and is already in the communique. What is missing is the commitment of the rich countries to reallocate or, or lend their uh, allocations to the poor countries. And if my words can reach from LSE to the, to the uh, conference hall where the meeting is, has held, I hope that they'll include that in, the, in, in their, in their um, uh, communique and actually uh, put it in effect. And I think that would really make a, a, a tremendous difference. Now, it's not the only thing that needs to be done, but this would just make the, uh, to the um, uh, periphery. There's $1.4 trillion of loans uh, coming due in 2009. And Right now, the banks don't want to renew loans, and they are under pressure from the national authorities to lend in their own country, and therefore it creates a, a pressure on them to, to draw money back from the periphery. Now, I think the central banks could cooperate <coughs> to ensure that the loans are rolled over 
not all the loans, but whenever they are sound enough, that they are rolled over. They've done it in the past. It's a well-trodden path. They did it, for instance, for South Korea in 1998. So it's not a big thing to do. I hope they'll mention it in the communique. It would reassure the financial markets. And after all, that's also very important. So those are the two practical steps that the G20 could take to make this conference a success and to show that international cooperation actually works. That is really what my message is. And I'm happy to answer, open the floor to a discussion. Thank you very much, George. We do have time for questions, and I'll throw it open to the audience in just one second, because perhaps I could retain the chair's privilege to ask you one myself. And that is, do you want to come and sit here? Just take some water. The other big idea in relation to SDRs that has emerged recently is from the People's Bank of China, where the governor, Zhao Xiaotuan, came out with a paper just last week recommending that actually there should be an even bigger switch and growth of SDRs so that they become effectively the global reserve currency rather than the dollar. What do you think about that idea, and how does that relate to your... Well, I'm very glad you asked this question, because I actually should have mentioned it. There are really two proposals. One is the Chinese proposal to develop SDRs as an international currency, endorsed also by the Russians. And the other one is to use the SDRs in the way that I proposed, with an annually issue while the recession lasts. One should recognize that the SDR today is not a currency. It's a bookkeeping entry on the books of the IMF. So it's a long way before you could come to the... And I hope that the concern about that will not stop the United States from endorsing this idea of using SDRs to help out the less developed world, because I don't think that the United States is ready to have the dollar replaced by the SDR as the international reserve currency. Now, in the long term, this is something that may come in consideration, and in the long term it may be in America's interest, because the system... This comes to the second part. I mean, we distinguish between the need for immediate rescue and then reconstituting the system. When it comes to reconstituting the system, then I think some kind of international currency, which was originally proposed by Keynes. It was one of the versions that... Right? ...may be appropriate, because the system as it has been working has been asymmetric. It imposed discipline on everybody 
except the United States. And that was not necessarily in the long-term interest. It was very pleasant to be able to consume 6.5% more than you produce. But then you have a, a, a big bill to pay at the end, which is coming due now. And now that is due and America is going to be suffering from that, then it may be appropriate to have a new system where it can't happen again. Thank you. Yeah, first guy up there, his hand up with a reporter's pad. If you could give your name, please. Yeah, it's Russell Lynch from the Press Association. How many or how much or how big an allocation of SDRs do you think the IMF needs to create? And are you worried about the sort of inflation implications further down the line? We are talking about an allocation of 250, let's say 200. I think the figures under discussion are either 200 or 250 billion dollars annually or whenever it's with each issue, which by itself is not enough to solve the rollover problem where, as I said, it's 1.4 trillion. But I think it would make a tremendous difference to the least developed countries, which could then engage in domestic fiscal stimulus. 250 billion dollars. Do you think that's enough? Do you think that's enough? Yeah, I think that it would make a tremendous difference to the most vulnerable and least able to defend themselves countries. And I think it would be also a tremendous gesture towards them because they are hit by a storm, not of their own making. But also, it's not just morality, but self-interest, because that means that there is a market for exports to those countries. How often would you like to, do you suggest to issue new 250 billion SDR? Is it every year? And do you think that for the first issue, the proportion of dollars should be the same as it's now in SDR basket? This would be annually as long as the recession lasts, as long as there are idle resources that could be put to use. So as long as there's need for global fiscal stimulus, which may be one year or it may be more. And the allocation is then convertible into a convertible currency at the discretion of the country that provides the currency. So it can be converted into dollars or euros, and there are five currencies that comprise the SDR. And the interest, the country that uses it, 
has to pay interest at the rate of the comp composite treasury bill rate, which is currently 0.01%, so it's <laughs> practically negligible. Now, there's been a lot of confusion whether lending those, I originally proposed donating, but donating the SDRs would actually be a charge to the budget of the country that donates it, and would be a very expensive way because it would enhance the budget deficit. However, if you don't donate it, but lend it with indefinite duration, then you have, on the one hand, received something, on the other hand, you have given something, so it's a wash. It's no expense to the donating country. It's very rare that you get a free lunch, but this happens to be one of those occasions. Thank you. Thank you. Come on. There's a lot of people who want to get in. You've written extensively about applying Karl Popper's vision of the open society onto an international scale. At the same time, global institutions, the IMF in particular, seem to have a very difficult time incrementally evolving to new power dynamics at the international level. What reforms do you envision to correct this seeming failure at the global level? Just repeat the end of the question. What reforms do you envision to correct this seeming inescapable feature of global politics? Look, I think that you will need definitely more regulation, and you will need international regulation, as long as you want to have a global financial system, and the system needs regulation because it's inherently unstable, prone to create bubbles. You do need, then, international regulation, and the international regulation has to accept responsibility for counter-cyclical policy. That is to say, recognize that asset bubbles are likely to arise and use methods to control, not to prevent, but not to allow it to go too far. Now, the authorities have so far explicitly refused. Greenspan particularly was quite outspoken on this, that if the markets don't know, how can we know? And he's right. Regulators can't be any better than the markets. So they nevertheless have the task of trying to dampen these bubbles, knowing that they don't know exactly what needs to be done, exactly what is a bubble. But they do get a feedback from the market. So they take a step, and then it either dampens the bubble or not. And if it's not enough, they take another step. And if they overshoot, then they have to retreat. So it's a kind of a cat-and-mouse game between the regulators and the market. I don't know if you have any comment on that, having been a regulator yourself. Well, I mean, at the moment, I think there is an emerging consensus in favor of some kind of macroprudential override to regulation. I think the difficulty will be to devise a formula for it, which is 
both consistent internationally, but which also in its application reflects the different circumstances of different countries. Because clearly, if you, we talk now about a crash, yes, but the components of it were that in the UK we had a 100% increase, real increase in house prices over the last decade. In Germany, zero. So a macroprudential overlay on regulation would have clearly had to be different in different countries, but nonetheless globally compatible for competitive reasons. So I think there's still quite a lot of work to do. It's going to be a big task to do it, and it will have to be coordination rather than a top-down system. It's a matter of the national regulators talking to each other and coordinating it. And I think it will also involve using instruments that currently are not in use, because we are currently only controlling money supply. But the new paradigm that I'm proposing is that markets have moods, and you can have, with a given money supply, you can have a boom or a bust. And therefore, you have to go counter the market mood. And that requires different techniques. It requires margin regulations and minimum capital requirements, which are varied depending on the market mood, variable capital requirements as opposed to fixed once and for all. And that would apply to banks, if the banks are overlending, or also you used to have active margin requirements, and that used to be varied. Now, margin requirements don't mean anything, because there are so many instruments to avoid them. So you would have to reactivate margin requirements in markets. How do you think gold will fit in, in terms of the new idea of a global reserve currency and SDRs in the short term? The role of gold in this new environment. I think that gold is not a very good base, because the economy grows at a different rate from the supply of gold. Historically, there have been times when gold supply was growing faster than the economy, and you had 150 years of inflation during the Spanish Empire expanded to Latin America. And then in the 19th century, you had the economy growing faster than the gold supply. So I don't think that we are going back to a gold standard. What do you think the Obama administration should do about the automotive industry in the U.S.? And what do you think the international implications are of the automotive crisis in the United States for the global economy? I don't know. It's not something that I've given a lot of thought to. The guy behind the camera there. Yes, in the middle. He's sort of hiding from me, but I can see you. That's it. You're the man.
Okay. Um, just to give me a moment to collect myself. Um, Mr. Soros, I have a, a tremendous respect for you. Um, I have an amazing belief that you are an amazingly brilliant man. Um, with that said, with that said, I think that a huge issue that we are all kind of looking past is looming over all of our discussions. Um, I think everything that we've discussed today more or less fits in the framework, now bear with me because it is a theory, of neoliberal capitalism. And with that said, everything, everything is dependent upon profits. About and profits. profits. And ceaseless development and growth. We live on a world with finite resources and we consume massively those resources at a rate that has been unprecedented in human history. Now, it's a bit of a stretch, but to influence the IMF to do anything, Allah as it had in 1997 in the financial crisis, which of course led to more flight capital, which led to the deaths of thousands and the enrichment of many dictators in the area, including Mr. Suharto and his little band of friends. Um, Sorry, it's a bit nervous. I'm we, getting a bit nervous. I'm getting to the question. We're moving towards a question. That would probably no, no, help. But actually, I, got, <laughs> I, I, I think Mr. Osorio can understand what I'm saying. Thank you. Yeah, I do understand what you're saying. Do we, the basic question I'm asking, do we even want this economic system anymore? We can do it differently. We can do it sustainably. We can do it easily. And it doesn't require neoliberal capitalism, it doesn't require flight capital, it doesn't require structural adjustment, it requires that we use common sense. We've got one planet to live on. That's all. Thank you very much. Look, I have a lot of sympathy with your concerns, but uh, human nature uh, uh, being what it is. Uh, uh, and to some extent, uh, you know, uh, we may be uh, doing a lot of harm to, to our, our environment. We do have a, a, a global warming threatening the, the, the uh, end of our civilization. And we need to get our act together and deal with it. Uh, uh, however, there is, I don't think that there is a, an alternative to people uh, pursuing their self-interest. Uh, we do need to have laws that override those self-interests, but the system itself has to be based on the recognition that people are out uh, for themselves first. And, you know, you had a beautiful alternatives, which was, you know, from everybody according to his, to his capacity and to, for everybody according to his needs. And that was a beautiful idea. But when it came to implementation, uh, the people who were charged with implementing it were taking care of their own needs uh, and their own position rather than the common position that they were in charge of, of, of implementing. So you have an underlying agency problem. It's g gaining recognition 
that the agents are not acting in the interest of the principles that the common interest that they are supposed to represent. And that was the demise of socialism, and that was the demise of capitalism. Because actually, when you separated the originators of loans from the principles who owned the loans, then they were generating fees instead of generating loans that were sound loans. So both capitalism and socialism have failed on the agency problem. So while we have these important objectives of controlling the destruction of our environment, some measure of equality, equal opportunity, and so on, the problem is with implementing it. Look, you can do it, I can do it, but you can't expect other people to do it. And you must recognize that people are not motivated like you are. You are an idealist, and I share your ideas. I see what's going on. Thank you. Look, we've had to think. We've given you quite a good go, okay? Thanks. Can we have a question down here? Please. Bor Balacoglu from the Hungarian Embassy. My question would go back to the regulatory question. I can't hear. I'm here. My question goes back to the regulatory framework, that I was wondering what is your opinion about the credit rating agencies? What responsibilities do they have, and how do you see the role of the credit rating agencies in the future? The role of the credit rating agencies, what responsibility? They have tremendous responsibility. I mean, look, the collapse of the system is due to all the people who are part of the system. The regulators bear tremendous responsibility for failure to regulate. The rating agencies for allowing their self-interest to get the better of them. And the practitioners for going too far. Now, you know, there were people who realized that this is going to lead to a bad end. But if they tried to implement that, they would be swept to the side. And people who were willing to dance. Take Citibank, which is in big trouble. Bill Rhodes, who is a leading official, warned about it in a public article in April of 2008 that things are in very bad shape, etc. At the same time, Prince, who was the chief executive, said we must dance until the music stops. And so everybody was guilty. 
and the rating agencies are way up there. Thank you. Next one here. Hello, Henry Tricks from The Economist. Just two points. One of them, as I understand it, the G20 have discussed a quota review of a new issue of SDRs, but not until 2011. What they want to do at this G20 agreement is something much more short-term, which would involve rich countries basically lending that money. Does that constitute failure for you if the quota review is put out to 2011? That's the first point. And the second point is just with regards to the governance of the IMF. With regards to the governance of the IMF, it's all very well creating new SDRs, but if the emerging market countries find that there is a stigma from taking the money or that they're so worried about the governance or their lack of representation on the IMF that they need to build up enormous amounts of reserves so they don't need to go to the IMF, is that not going to defeat your proposal? Look, I think if they have an SDR issue, but they use it only for short-term liquidity purposes, I don't think it would do the job. So I think I would not consider that a breakthrough, which I think is needed. And secondly, the IMF does have a bad reputation, and there is a stigma. And it has made available short-term lending facilities, which haven't been used by a single country because they don't want to take the stigma that is attached to it. So the SDR distribution, the countries that get their quota can do with it, they're free to dispose over it entirely. But I think for the ones that would be lent to them, there has to be some control to ensure that it's properly spent. And somebody mentioned Suharto and so on. I mean, also, which countries get it that they should meet certain standards of dealing with, prevent corruption and stealing of the money, etc. So there have to be some conditions, and those conditions have to be very carefully crafted to avoid a repetition of the stigma that was involved. So this is what needs to be worked out. It cannot be worked out at this conference. The principle of doing it could be proposed and endorsed by the various heads of state, and that's as good as setting the process in motion. That's the most that one can expect from this. That would be, to my mind, a resounding success. Thank you. The guy here with the red tie is coming behind you. Hi, Juan Spinetta from Bloomberg News. I want to ask you if you foresee a scenario where the U.K. also has to receive a loan against those SDRs. There were some comments over the weekend, if you can clarify that. And the second question will be how you take the Chinese attitude during this crisis. Do you think the Chinese government should be more involved in trying to gather a global solution? 
I think that the the IMF, the UK having to turn to the IMF is is rather rather extremely remote. I gave an interview to the Times where I said that, and it produced a headline: the IMF, UK may have to turn to the IMF. That was, I think, the 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 slant that the headline writer wanted to impose on what I was saying, and I want to 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 correct that. And it shows, however, the 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 concern in the UK that it may have to go to the IMF shows the degree of stigma that is attached to the IMF, and the IMF has to live that down. In other words, they have to re-jiggle the conditions under which they give those loans. I was in the UK Treasury the last time we went to the IMF, but fortunately I'm not there now. So, woman there. Sorry, the second part of the question was about the role of China. Sorry. What is generally speaking? Look, I think one has to recognize that China stands to be the big winner, come out strongest, relatively speaking, from this crisis. It's as badly hit as 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 the rest of the world. In some ways, even worse than some countries, because it's so dependent on exports. However, the leadership knows that they have got to deliver economic growth. It's not a democracy, and they know that they would face social unrest if you had no economic growth. So they know that their effectively their life depends on growth, and and they have the means to deliver it. They have they have a system which is more suited to these emergency conditions than than the rest of the world, because they have more more government control over the banks, and so they they are in a position to have a major stimulus program, and if it's not enough, to do more. And you already have a 40% expansion in bank lending just because they opened the faucet, and you have a rally in the stock market, etc. So China will be coming out of this recession faster than the rest of the world, and I think if you don't have a multilateral arrangement to to help the developing world, China will do it on its own. I mean, they have been lending money to the United States in order to foster their exports. They can lend to Liberia as well. Yes, woman there. Hi, Mr. Soros. I'd like to ask you something about the eurozone. How do you think the eurozone is affected, and how do you see countries like Ireland, for example, carry on? Should they be bailed out by the stronger ones, or how do you see a success there? I don't think I can comment on this because I don't know. I mean, Ireland has a very serious problem. I think that it will probably have to be handled by the European Central Bank rather than and the national banks. I mean, the national authorities of Europe rather than the IMF. 
uh, and there is a there is a uh, kind of an unfinished business within the eurozone um, because the euro has a has a has a common a, a central bank but it doesn't have a common treasury uh, and uh, you know uh, uh, bailing out uh, uh, the banking system is a job for the treasury uh, when it's a solvency issue it's for the treasury not for 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 the central bank so there is a an un, unfinished business or unresolved uh, issue in 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 the euro and i think it's a european problem and it ought to be solved within the euro rather than the imf uh, one woman two two in front Hello, Cecilia Valente from Reuters. Mr. Soros, what can we expect in the market's development in 2009? What other sectors do you think might be saved? I'm oh, sorry. Sorry, what did you say? What do we expect from the markets in 2009? What do you expect? What do you expect in the markets in 2009? Well, uh, since I know exactly what markets are going to do, uh, but I'm not at liberty to disclose it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say one last question here. Just uh, man here. Hi, Gang Jian. I very impressive. You say the SDR to give the possibility for the poor countries to follow the like US and UK the shoot to pump money into the economy. Uh, but I have concern. Uh, how do you view the implications? The U.S. and U.K. pump so huge money uh, into the economy. What's the implication for the infla inflation in the long terms? Thank you. What, what, uh, he says your, your recommendation on SDR would allow developing countries to uh, pump money into their economies, but are you not concerned that what the U.S. and the U.K. have done on a large scale is in fact going to lead to inflation? Yeah. Yes. See, you have these this two problems. One, how to reestablish some balance in the world economy. The other is how to prevent the collapse of credit. And you can't reestablish balance without first uh, um, greatly increasing the money supply. Because you have this collapse of credit and the, the, you need then uh, to provide government guarantees to replace the ability of the private sector, the banking system, to provide credit. And that is, uh, that is in fact, I mean, basically what you need to do is uh, effectively print money, recapitalize the banks, uh, uh, and stabilize the housing market. And... Uh, this, this does mean an, in, an incredible expansion in the mon monetary base. The, the, uh, the balance of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve has expanded from $800 billion in September of 2008 to over $2 trillion within two months of the uh, collapse and, or the crash. Um, and the amounts guaranteed 
by the Federal Reserve are seven, now it's close to eight, with the new proposal introduced by last week, it's now up to close to eight trillion dollars. So eight plus two, that's ten trillion dollars from 800. And that's not enough to replace the collapse of credit. And that's why the dollar is so strong. There's a shortage of dollars in the world. So the only way to regain a balance at reasonably full employment is first to reinflate, and then when credit is restarted, to drain the monetary base as fast as credit is expanding. So it's an extremely delicate and difficult proposition. But that's the only way to avoid a repetition of what happened in the 1930s. Thank you. We need to wind up now, I'm afraid. Thank you very much, George, for coming and presenting to us, and particularly for taking questions on almost everything except whether England would win the World Cup. No one's asked you about the future of Hungary, but perhaps that's too sad a story to deal with, just as well. So thank you very much for coming, and thank you all for your questions.